Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This is the best of Newt's World. Coming up, my interview with Dr. Henry Kissinger. On this episode of Newt's World, I am honored and delighted to have an old friend, a mentor, somebody I've learned from for almost, I guess, half a century, Dr. Henry Kissinger. He is one of the most remarkable people in modern America. At 99, he has written a new book, which I recommend to everyone, called Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy. And it's a sign of his extraordinary life that each of the leaders is somebody he's known personally. Henry, thank you very much for joining me on Newt's World. You and I have known each other for many decades, and I have respected your thinking and considered you a strategic thinker, and that is what the country importantly needs. So I'm happy to be here with you. I want to start at a personal level before we get to the book, which, as you know, I've written a review of as a newsletter and urged everyone to look at because it's so remarkable. But first, I want to establish a couple of things. When you and your family fled Germany to escape the Nazi regime, you were very young. Did you have any notion that you'd have an extraordinary life like this? Well, when we left Germany, I had just turned 15. We were living in Nazi Germany, in which, being Jewish, we had no legal rights. And uh, Hitler Youth could beat me up in the streets if that was their idea, which occasionally happened. So when I came to America, I had no idea that someday I might be Secretary of State and advisor to presidents and senior leaders of the Congress. But 
within the first months, I experienced that I was living in a country of democracy. And in high school, I wrote an essay that sometimes I miss people with whom I grew up. But when I reflect that in America I can walk on the street with my head erect, then it was the greatest experience of my life to get here. You know, you became a naturalized citizen in 1943, which, by the way, is the year I was born. And then you joined the Army and received a Bronze Star serving in Europe. When you came back, you ended up ultimately becoming a faculty member at Harvard and created quite a name for yourself as a young man with several very seminal books. When I was a sophomore at Harvard, I had to go through college again because before the war, I had been working in the shaving brush factory and gone to school at night. And so I didn't make it to college until after the war. Were you able to use the GI Bill after the war? I used the GI Bill. I couldn't have afforded it otherwise. That's great. What college were you at? I was at Harvard. So you've had a narrow educational experience, getting educated and then teaching at Harvard. I didn't know there were any Republicans in this world. <laughs> it's always interested me, as I think you may know, I was a Rockefeller State Chairman in 1968. And in many ways, your rise came through Nelson Rockefeller before Richard Nixon. How did that occur? Nelson Rockefeller was a special assistant to President Eisenhower for what was called psychological strategy. At that time, what is today the National Security Council was divided into two parts. The National Security Council that dealt with long-range planning and the Psychological Strategy Board that was supposed to think of the future. And the, the Psychological Strategy Board was more focused, and it was focused on immediate topics. That division was dropped after Eisenhower. So Rockefeller was doing a report on the future of the international system after the summit meetings of 1950 or whenever they took place. And he invited me to participate and to help draft the report. That is what started our relationship and friendship. So even though you were close to Rockefeller, when Nixon became president, he turned to you and brought you in as a senior thinker, I think, in the area he most cared about, which was national security and foreign policy. But that was sort of a tribute to you to be able to bridge both those personalities. It was a total surprise to be invited. I had never met Nixon, and it was very courageous of him to take somebody who had been with the opposition to him and 
when I asked Rockefeller whether I should do this, he said, remember, he's taking a much greater risk with you than you with him. But it worked out well, and you developed, I think, one of the most unique, almost symbiotic relationships in American White House history. That somehow you and Nixon could think through things together and then could jointly enforce it on the bureaucracy in a way that is really remarkable. Well, that's a very correct description. He and I met every morning when we were in town. But that is when most mornings. And Nixon liked to think, I mean, insisted on thinking, on and answering the question, where are we going? And where are we trying to come out? And he would sit there and take copious notes. And we then implement them in the which I think other presidents would tell you is an extraordinary achievement because the bureaucracy is often deeply resistant to whatever merely elected officials want, even if it's the president. I have to ask you, you had two parallel extraordinary things going on. One was the negotiations in Paris, which people have often forgotten how intricately Nixon approached trying to find a way to get to peace with honor which was then undone by the Congress in 1975. But you really managed this constant negotiation with the Vietnamese and got a Nobel Peace Prize for it in 1973. At the same time, you are the lead figure in opening up China. How would you rate those two and compare those two? And they're, they're remarkable achievements, and you were doing both at the same time. Ending the war in Vietnam was a necessity in order to help heal the divisions in the country. And it was a necessity also so that our allies did not see America defeated in such a major effort. This was something that had to be cleaned away. Opening to China created new strategic options, because up to then, China and the Soviet Union, as Russia was then called, presented a united bloc vis-à-vis -vis the West and the democracies. By opening to China, they became gradually split, and it gave us an opportunity to balance them against each other. And our instructions to the bureaucracy were position yourself in such a way that we are closer to both Russia and China than they are to each other. And that, for about 30 years, created a considerable stability in the relations with both China and Russia, that it is now disintegrated. Now, when I say stability, the basic position of the Nixon period was that if Russia transgressed 
is a point we would resist and we would know that we are resisting and on two occasions we went on alert and we stopped the wars in the Middle East that had been started with Russian aggression. So while conducting a complicated diplomacy, the Nixon administration also conducted a complicated strategic effort that maintained and strengthened the balance of power in the world while moving towards peace in Vietnam and in the end even beginning to ease relations with Russia. Did the opening with China strengthen your hand in Moscow and make it easier to work with the Russians? It strengthened our hand enormously and one demonstration of this is before I went to China, we had attempted to discuss the Soviet interests in a summit with Nixon. And the answer was that we needed to help some Soviet purposes at Berlin and other issues before they'd consider a summit. Well, we ignored that answer. But within two months of our opening to China, they came back and offered us an unconditional summit in Moscow, in which they hold, in which was the beginning of some strategic agreements, arms control agreements on the limitation of the major weapons of destruction. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to Gingrich360.com book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com book. Part of the reason that I wanted to start with your own personal experience is that one of the things you do that amazes me is you're a great historian. Your original work was in history, and you've lived history. So you are able, in this new book, which I really do recommend to everybody on leadership, you're able both to talk about people you had met and worked with personally, but to bring to it sort of the dual perspective of the academic and the actual practitioner. And I'm curious, you pick Conrad Adenauer, Charles de Gaulle, Richard Nixon, Anwar Sadat, Lee Kuan Yew, and Margaret Thatcher. You know, there are many other people that you knew and worked with. What led you to pick these six? These six were working in our world of cooperation and I would say all except one were governing in democratic states and that person was an Egyptian leader who made peace with Israel so he lived in that world and I'm trying to describe the elements that are needed in strengthening the international order and that was the major purpose of this book. I'm thinking of writing now another book about dealing with adversaries. It's a less elevating job than building on the international order, although it's a necessary job. As a child, I lived in Germany. I lived in France. I was there when the paratroopers killed the Fourth Republic and brought back de Gaulle. And I read these with fascination, and I wasn't as close to Thatcher as you were, but she had a huge impact on the work we did, starting with her election in 1979. And what I'm struck with that makes this book, I think, so brilliant, you're able to take each of these leaders and show how they had a unique strategy which fit their particular needs and which they were able to stick with. I mean, in some circumstances that were really extraordinarily difficult, and of course, in the case of Anwar Sadat, he lost his life following a visionary strategy. Did it strike you at the time you were dealing with them how consistently strategic these six people were, or did that occur later as you looked back and thought about it? To some extent, it occurred to me while I was dealing with them that they were extremely unusual people. 
But the extent of their strategic thinking became clear only with the evolution of their policies, which, as you said earlier, they had to insist on vis-à-vis -vis their bureaucracies in their opposition, and which they managed to impose on their societies. You were once very generous and invited me to come out to your farm and spend a weekend with Lee Kuan Yew and yourself. And I was really struck with how he had learned things as a graduate student in Britain that he then carried the whole rest of his life, that he had found some key principles that he stuck with and that created modern Singapore. Kind of a remarkable, almost a charisma of the intellect, if you will. Was his belief in free markets, which no other country in his region, except possibly Japan, which was starting on its recovery. But certainly among the developing countries in Asia, his insistence on free market principles made it possible to build up its country to the standards it now has. I was struck, and this may be because my childhood was so shaped by de Gaulle's return in 1958, but of the six of them, it seems to me, de Gaulle is the one who has, in a way, the strongest ego and the greatest capacity for inventing himself. From the time he has to flee France as a traitor to Vichy France, convince Churchill and FDR to deal with him, even though he really has no assets, and has this sense of, as somebody once said, if your name is de Gaulle, you're Charles of France, somehow it may shape how you think about everything. But don't you look back on that almost with a sense of amazement that he pulled it off? But in retrospect, when you consider that when he arrived in England, he arrived really without a set of suits, without the language, its country had been defeated, and he was the lowest-ranking general in the French army, and he had only been made general three weeks before. So he could emerge from this as the leader of the Free French. It's incredible. Churchill said to him, I'm alone, and you're alone. So we might as well work together. But at least Churchill had still a country with him. De Gaulle, when he started in England, had only the people that had been evacuated from Dunkirk. And they were free to return to France. So there was, I doubt that he had a thousand people with him at the beginning. Well, and, and when he does get back and he does become president of the new France in the Fourth Republic after winning the war, he then has the internal requirement to resign because, as he says, de Gaulle can't work with the pygmies of the French political class. And at the time, he thought they'd call him back in about 18 months, but in fact, it took about a decade. And I had this sense with Nixon that there are certain people who have to follow who they are 
And therefore, there's actually no downside risk because they have no alternative. I don't know if that makes any sense. I think that's a good point. I hadn't elaborated it in that way, but it is true. The difference between the call and Nixon's respect was that Nixon was a great strategic thinker, but he did not have the God's capacity to move his whole people. But in terms of strategic thinking, they had great similarities, and they also got along very well with each other. And at a point when Nixon was out of office, and had just been defeated in running for governor of California. So he was sort of being politically finished. De Gaulle invited him to visit him in Paris, and then their relationship was resumed when Nixon became president. But that was less than a year before the call resigned again, partly because he thought he had solved all the big problems and he didn't want to concentrate on all what he considered the petty problems of day-to-day government. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%.
Identity theft protection starts here. We're chatting the week that, sadly, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. And, of course, she's been with her on occasions. And we earlier I had done a podcast which talked about her relationship with Lady Thatcher. And I brought up your book and the point you make about Lady Thatcher, that despite being tough in public, she was actually a very kind and generous person in private. And I think you write that in a very loving way in your chapter on her. Well, I had great affection for her. And she did represent its combination of extreme strength in defending her convictions, of great humanity in her relationship with people individually. And actually, I make the point at the end of the book, in the last paragraphs, that one can't explain her properly without including the love she had for her country and for the importance of her country. When I met her the first time, she had just been elected leader of the Conservative Party, but she still had to wait three years before she won the election. And we were talking about campaigns in various democratic countries and that they all fought for the middle ground that every party tried to achieve and compromise to it. She said that would not be what she would do. She thought her responsibility as a leader was to put forward her convictions and to move the middle ground towards her position and not have to move to the middle ground. And she maintained that all her life and revolutionized the conservative party. And some of the basic principles are still the essence of the conservative party. I was struck that she actually had an ability to have a strategic goal and to stick to it, no matter what her allies, her friends, the news media, you name it. I mean, she knew where she was going. I have a good illustration of this during the Falkland crisis, when the Argentines had taken over a British island, the Falklands, off the coast of South America. And I had been invited to deliver a speech at the British Foreign Office. And she invited me to tea. But before that, I had had lunch with the Foreign Secretary and with most of his advisors. And they all were eager for a negotiation with Argentina. And they had given me some options for a negotiation at lunch. So when I saw her at late afternoon, I asked her which options she favored. But she was so outraged at the word option 
and so annoyed that anyone could even suggest that, that I didn't dare to tell her that I had cut them from her own advisors. But anyway, she managed to create a fleet that went all the way from Britain to the Falklands. The basic principle was one cannot permit sovereignty to be overthrown by military actions. It's a problem very similar we have in in Ukraine today. And secondly, she thought it was important for the Atlantic Alliance and for the free peoples who were working together that England did not look as if it could be pushed over by military force. And she stuck to it and she achieved both of her objectives. And I think that gave her a unique status, almost more than any prime minister since Churchill, of somebody who would risk everything to protect and defend Britain. She certainly, in her period and after, I had the honor of being invited to the funeral service at St. Paul's. And the Queen attended. The Queen had not attended any funeral service for a Prime Minister except for Churchill. So it was a wonderful example of the role of the British monarchy because in her bearing and conduct at that funeral, she symbolized how important Thatcher had been for the country, even though the Queen cannot take a political position. She did she raised Thatcher above being a prime minister as a guiding figure for British history. Of the six people you write about the one who I think is both the most romantic and the most tragic is Anwar Sadat. And I thought that chapter of your book was particularly inspiring and in a sense stimulating because you put Sadat in a context of trying to literally change a cultural moment, not just a political moment, and taking just enormous risks to do it. I think Sadat would probably not have been assassinated if he had negotiated with Israel on the basis of immediate tactical issues. But he explained to his people and to the Muslim, to the Islamic world, that the pattern of thinking had to be changed if one wanted a peaceful world. And where Arabs had refused to negotiate with Israel for many decades, he not only negotiated with Israel, he went to Jerusalem and made a speech in which he said, we both have to overcome basic prejudices 
and we have to build such a world. And he managed to get a, to negotiate a peace agreement. But too many people in his own country wouldn't forgive him for his successes. But it was inspiring because he had had the courage to start the 73 war with Israel because he wanted to show that he was acting from real conviction and strength. And then I had the negotiation with him and I was wondering how difficult that might be because up to then he had been more on the, apparently more on the radical side. And so we got into the negotiating room and he sat down and he said, I want a new solution. I want a Kissinger solution. That was a tribute to the Secretary of State position I had, which meant he wanted the American approach that we want. We cannot settle this all at once, but we can make peace on a country-by-country -country basis. And then he did that. And with our contribution, but without that basic conviction to which he had come, that to have an international order, you need some conceptual agreements. It probably couldn't have been done. He was a moving personality in that sense. Well, I got the impression of all of the personalities you wrote about, he's in a sense the most transcendent, that he had reached beyond his own experience and beyond his own culture and had a vision and was prepared to sacrifice his life for that vision. And beyond the immediate tactical issues, he was, in that sense, he was unique. When I wrote my newsletter about leadership and urged everybody to go buy it, I got a note from one of our readers, Mark Horvath, who wanted me to ask you, so on behalf of Mark, he says, please ask Dr. Kissinger what he thinks of the Abraham Accords. And he went on to say that he used to work in the Middle East in the 1980s and never thought it'd be possible to have that kind of agreement. I know you've talked about it a little bit in some other places, but what is your sense of the role of the Abraham Accords and the evolution of the region? The Abraham Accords could be a breakthrough in the tradition of what we've been talking about, of what Sadat was attempting to achieve, because the countries that made it were relatively small in size, fairly rich because of the oil, but they took a broad view beyond the really military confrontations. They depend importantly in their day-to-day -day life on Saudi Arabia and Egypt and much larger countries. They took that basic step for themselves, but they have achieved 
substantial support from Egypt and more support than it's apparent from Saudi Arabia, really, on these issues, they're moving in the same direction. And with the issue of Iran coming up in the next years, it is really important agreement that links Israel to key Arab countries in a way that had been achieved previously only in that agreement of Sadat. I had the sense that you wrote this book on leadership in part because you instinctively are worried that the system is less likely today to produce leaders with this kind of capability and that we really need to think deeply about how we're going to educate and recruit and get people to this level of historic capability. Would that be a pretty accurate sense that you are worried about how the system has, in a sense, decayed? Well, the system, in order to try to create a system of stability and progress within a country and of international order between nations, you need visions that go beyond the day-to-day tactical problems that arise in the normal course of events that inspire you to deal with these practical problems. But remember that a vision is needed to link the practical to the visionary. And in the contemporary world, and regrettably in most democratic countries, this visionary element is declining, and these countries define their domestic practical issues as the only valid ones, and therefore the unity in the country is diminishing. And at the same time, technology is producing such a change in human life for which there are no categories. If you cannot develop some common vision and conceptual approaches, that I would say is maybe the biggest challenge of our contemporary period. I want to close with a personal note. You may remember a while back I called you, and I think I was, oh, 77 or something at the time, and you're exactly 20 years older than me. And I said, what's your advice about getting older? And you said, you're too young to have this conversation. I would say that dealing with you at 99, first of all, this is a book any leader at any age would be proud of. It's a remarkable book. And to have you now explaining your next work, which I am confident will be equally brilliant, you are truly a model of what citizenship can be like and somebody who's a truly historic figure. I remember the many conversations we have had over the years. And when you were speaker in the house, what I considered then conceptual and inspirational 
objectives you had, they will take some time to implement over a period of decades. But you may have played an important role in your life from what I've been able to observe. Well, I think it's important, and you are an example that I wish we had more people doing, because each generation has to learn from prior generations or they're doomed to repeat the mistakes and to run the risk. And I think your body of work since leaving public office is frankly as important a contribution to the future of the human race as the work you did while you were in office. Well, I'm very touched by what you've said throughout this program. And it's really remarkable that over such a long period of time, you have maintained a leadership position in this country. Well, between us, we may get something done together, and then another 20 years from now, I want to call you and ask your advice on getting older. Henry, I want to thank you for joining me. This has been great fun. I hope you felt some usefulness and some positive about doing it in your book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy. I encourage everyone to buy a copy, and I hope this podcast will convince them that you're worth learning from. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guest, Henry Kissinger. You can get a link to buy his new book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, 
Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, batter, batter. Are you ready to hit a home run with flavor? Step up to the plate and swing by Penn Station East Coast Subs, where every bite is a grand slam. Craving a classic Philly cheesesteak or maybe a savory chicken teriyaki? Or how about loading up on their delicious fresh-cut fries? Call it a triple play by ordering Penn Station's signature fresh-squeezed lemonade. When it comes to subs, Penn Station is the big league. Order online at penn-station.com or stop at a store near you. Penn Station East Coast Subs.